and welcome to Infatuated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And this week, we are diving into murder mystery and poetry. Guess which one's which? (laughs) (laughs) Imagine we did it the other way around. Imagine. No. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. (laughs) Luckily for all of you, it is Emily that is bringing us The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton. Not to be mixed up with The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, (laughs) which is also a good book, though. Which I need to read. Oh my goodness, you do have to read it. It's so good. Maybe I'll do an infatuated (laughs) on that, but not till you've read it. Mm. But today, I'm going to dive into the whirlwind world of Catherine Cohen's debut collection, God, I Feel Modern, tonight. And we've also got a special silly treat lined up for our listeners' question, which you will not want to miss. So, what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton. This is also called The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle in America because the title clashes with The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo Mm. by Taylor Jenkins Reid. But for some reason that didn't matter in the UK. But anyway, this one came out in 2018 and I have described it as... Agatha Christie meets Cluedo meets Groundhog Day meets Back to the Future. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah, I get that. Yeah, which is to say, it's a genre-bending mystery. Evelyn Hardcastle is murdered. Aidan must solve the murder of Evelyn, and he's given eight days to do so. Except each day is the same day, the day of the murder. And each time he wakes up, he's in a new body. So there's eight Aidens in eight different bodies, all trying to solve a murder that looks like a suicide. I do not know how he wrote this, because it's hard enough having to, like, explain it. It blows my mind. Wow. So you have, like, the classic murder mystery trope of a grand manor filled with important guests all take on those, like, archetypal roles from Christie novels and this, like, wonderful twist which adds... So much more drama and tension and like frustration at getting like close to solving it, yet not close enough. It's set in England, but I, I don't think it ever gives an exact date for when it's set. It does seem to be one of those kind of timeless stories, but my best guess is like 1920s, maybe 30s. And the book questions like ethics, morality, secret keeping. Also, it's got a plague doctor in it, which just gives it extra creepy bonus points. Why? Why must there always be a man with a bird face? <laughs> so, before I talk about some details, like, I really love... You guys all know by now, I'm a fan of a good author's note. Mm. And this one I really love, and I'm going to read it to you, because it is, it's him explaining his journey of, of writing the book. No, let me... that was a good sound. (laughs) (laughs) It's Doris's fault, really. I've got that written on a post-it note on my wall. Doris was my next-door neighbour when I was eight. Every weekend, she'd stock the car boot sales of Northwest England, bringing back great stacks of Agatha Christie novels for me to read. I never knew how this tradition started, or why. Maybe she thought every working-class kid should read about posh people being murdered. (laughs) It went on for years... Doris would ceremoniously deliver books on Saturday. I'd read them over the week and then we'd start again. By the time I was 10, I had an encyclopedic knowledge of Christie and I knew I was going to write one. At that point, I didn't even know I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know I could write or what was involved. I just wanted to write an Agatha Christie novel the way she did. I wanted the big country house filled with secrets and lies. I wanted the impossible murder, the isolation and the sense of fairness that, for me, made Christie special. The clues were always in front of the reader. The mystery was a game, and you could win. You just had to be cleverer than Agatha. I loved that, and I wanted to write one. I took my first swing at it when I was 21, when my ego had swollen sufficiently to convince me that it would be easy. It wasn't. I stared at a blank screen for a good month until I realised that she'd already written every great plot twist, every brilliant setup, suspicious character and narrative trick. 
I was trying to make soup from Agatha's old nod on bones. And then I'm just going to skip ahead a bit, but basically 10 years have passed. My future wife and I moved back to England within a year and I started writing. I promised her it would take a year. I probably should have realised it was unrealistic when planning the damn thing took three months. Post-it notes covered my walls and a huge timeline took over my desktop. I filled notebooks with character notes and slowly worked out how to write a time travel, body hopping murder mystery novel. It was a lot of fun. It had to be. It nearly drove me mad. I crept around old gothic mansions with a candle trying to get the atmosphere right. I purposefully lost myself in a forest to fuel that panic. I stared at far too many strangers, stealing their mannerisms for the characters in the book. It took three years in the end, and now it's in your hands. To this day, that blows me away. I really hope you enjoy it. I hope it keeps you reading until 2am and you wake up late the next morning and drag yourself to work still thinking about it. Just don't blame me if that happens. It's Doris's fault, and I can't thank her enough. Oh, I love whoever Doris is. <laughs> oh, that almost made me cry. I've got really. <laughs> I know it's so that. sweet. But yeah, like I just loved that because he's talking about how hard it is to write, but he's also talking about how like fun writing can be. And so I love that we get a glimpse of that there. I also just love that he explains like how much time it took like there was a 10 year gap (laughs) and then another three years to actually write it yeah and yeah I just love that he's kind of shown that fun side because even though this novel is a murder mystery and is very suspenseful and frustrating and dark like it is a fun read and I just love hearing where book ideas come from anyway so at this point actually getting into the story I just want to read the first couple paragraphs of the novel um, to show you just how quickly you're plonked into the action. Okay. (laughs) So this chapter is titled Day One. I forget everything between footsteps. Anna, I finish shouting, snapping my mouth shut in surprise. My mind has gone blank. I don't know who Anna is or why I'm calling her name. I don't even know how I got here. I'm standing in a forest, shielding my eyes from the spitting rain. My heart's thumping. A reek of sweat and my legs are shaking. I must have been running, but I can't remember why. How did... I'm cut short by the sight of my own hands. They're bony, ugly. A stranger's hands. I don't recognise them at all. Feeling the first touch of panic, I try to recall something else about myself. A family member, my address, age, anything. But nothing's coming. I don't even have a name. Every memory I had a few seconds ago is gone. Oh, what a beginning. Yeah. <laughs> that that bit about the hands is like a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I just love how there's no exposition. And, like, because it's first-person point of view and the character has no idea what's happening, like, you're feeling those emotions too. Like, you're wondering, what is going on? Why has he forgotten everything? Like, why is he in someone else's body? Who is Anna? Yeah. Uh, it's just such a good start to the story. So I will say picking quotes for this was kind of difficult because not only is it a mystery novel, and I obviously don't want to spoil that, but also like a clue from day one might end up in day eight. So I can't talk about too much at the start of the book either. (laughs) So what I've decided to do is talk about like imagery and language that I really enjoyed. Nice. The idea behind these images, which are like reoccurring things, is kind of similar to something I said I loved in If We Were Villains by Emma Rio, which is that Turton is concerned with duality and duplicity. So it's a really interesting idea to talk about in this novel because Aidan is literally wearing other people's faces. He's not like the authoritative detective who's come into the house he's like a secret detective acting as the other guests Mm. but like that's not the only sort of mask wearing that happens in the house and so I have two quotes to share on that kind of subject so the first quote is it the dance which occurs on the night that's why everyone's at this house it's for a ball and it's a masked ball which is obviously just a trope I always love like I just don't get sick of it it's I love it. So at this point he's in, I think it's his second host body, or it might be the third. 
I can't remember. It doesn't really matter because I'm leaving out who it is anyway because you don't need to know for this quote. And he is observing the dance for the first time. Clowns slap me on the back and women swirl in front of me, butterfly masks in hand. I ignore much of it, pushing my way to the couches near the French doors where I can better rest my weary legs. Until now, I'd only witnessed my fellow guests in their handfuls, their spite spread thin across the house. To be ensnared among them all, as I am now, is something else entirely, and the further I descend into the uproar, the thicker their malice seems to become. Most of the men look to have spent the afternoon soaking in their cups and are staggering instead of dancing, snarling and staring, their conduct savage. Young women throw their heads back and laugh, their makeup running and hair coming loose as they're passed from body to body, goading a small group of wives who have grouped together for safety, wary of these panting, wild-eyed creatures. Nothing like a mask to reveal somebody's true nature. Hmm. <laughs> so that's just like a little quote, but I think it's a good example of the kind of tone of this book, which is in quite a decadent setting, but there's just nothing honest about it. I've talked about mask imagery before, how it's a really effective way of signalling to a reader that like something's being concealed. And on the flip side, you also have that idea mentioned in this quote where anonymity or even just like the suggestion of anonymity means you can reveal things that you normally wouldn't. Mm. And also, as I mentioned earlier, there's someone dressed as a plague doctor in this book. I'm not going to talk about that character because that's spoilery. Um, But that's like the most concealing kind of mask you can wear. Like there's no way of telling (laughs) who the person is under that kind of mask. Mm. And that character is probably the most secretive character. So it's definitely not a coincidence that they wear that costume. Nice. And yeah, I have one more quote which is talking about that kind of doubling. But it's executed in a different way. And I'll I think I'll just read that first and then explain. It's just a little paragraph. The path has brought us to the reflecting pool. This is where Evelyn will take her life tonight, and as with everything at Blackheath, its beauty is dependent on distance. Viewed from the ballroom, the reflecting pool is a magnificent sight, a long mirror conveying all the drama of the house. Here and now, though, it's just a filthy pond, the stone cracked, moss growing thick as carpet on the surface. Oh, I love that image. Yeah, I I love that because I feel like Turton chose specifically a reflecting pool over like a pond or a swimming pool because you can attach certain qualities to them. Like reflecting pools are purely aesthetic. They don't have like fish in them or like features like waterfalls or fountains or anything like that. They're purely for creating a mirror like reflection of the surroundings and as he writes in that passage like the mirror of the pool reflects all the drama of that night and again as he says the pool looks more impressive from a distance because you see it acting as a mirror but up close you can see all the decay and the moss and the imperfections so in my mind and I am trying to be vague for the purposes of not spoiling the plot but this is like a larger metaphor for the story Evelyn's death seems like a suicide from a distance but when examined closely is actually a murder this grand house seems impressive but is actually like falling apart in in more ways than one or even like Aiden's hosts seem like those people but they're actually Aiden like there's other Mm. duplicitous characters too and it's just a book filled with people or situations that seem like one thing from a distance but when examined closely turn out to be something else yeah it's very gothic as well yeah definitely and I think with like all the the mask imagery and then the reflecting pool imagery both of which like keep coming up in the novel you really are being told not to trust anything or anyone like Aiden doesn't even know if he can trust himself because he has no memories the ones he does have he takes on from his hosts and like not trusting people is not necessarily new for the mystery genre obviously but I like how Turton's doing it not just through what the characters do and what the plot is but actually in his writing style like Mm. with the language and the imagery and my kind of one last point I want to bring up 
and I do think connects to these quotes is that my sister read this after me and at one point I asked her why do you think Aiden's having to do it and like she had this moment of realizing that she hadn't even thought about that and it was something I hadn't considered either until quite like far into reading it like you're diving in with him finding out the task and it's like okay something to concentrate on there's a time limit this needs to get done and you almost forget that there must be an external reason for the time loop and like the murder investigation and the fact that he's been picked to do it and I mean that in a good way because Mm. like it shows it has layers to it and there's like a bigger picture story outside of just solving Evelyn's murder so like in a way I think you can apply all the the mask and doubling imagery to the novel itself because it's masquerading as one thing but really it's about something else and I'm being vague on purpose. (laughs) Yeah you're doing a very good job I'm very proud of you. (laughs) Honestly like that's all I'm gonna say today I know that was really quick but like it's a mystery novel I can't say anything else but I really wanted to talk about it because I think it's brilliant yeah I don't want to dive too deep when it's a mystery because that's the point but I will just say I found myself so wrapped up in this story like it's so tense you have to keep reading like when you get to the end of a chapter so I highly recommend it if you want a new kind of murder mystery novel it's definitely very unique yeah that sounds really good it's like it sounds like it has the aesthetic of knives out but with yeah time travel or time loop which is fun yeah like would this have come out this came out before knives out i think but yeah i'm trying to work out the timeline 2018 when was knives out was that 2019 maybe 19 yeah because it was right before that (laughs) but yeah no you are right it is that kind of like it's definitely not as in your face american like it's definitely british and very Mm. like upper class british but it's great it's really good (laughs) amazing so what are you infatuated with this week my infatuation this week is a poetry collection yes pals it's a poetry week (laughs) it's the debut collection from comedian and performer Catherine cohen and it's called Mm. god i feel modern tonight poems from a gal about town I just want to show you the cover because it looks like a renaissance painting but oh my God, yeah. when you look at the detail of it she's holding a phone with a load of unanswered texts <laughs> which it just makes me laugh. But yeah it is everything you could hope for in a New York millennial white girl poetry collection. It is, okay. <laughs> it's funny, it's like unexpectedly profound in places It's all lowercase. (laughs) And even though it's like very self-aware and sardonic, it's also quite earnest and quite like vulnerable, which I enjoy. Mm -hmm. The main themes of the collection as a whole, I'd say, are sex, depression, existential dread and parties, I think, (laughs) which gives you an idea of the kind of content. And most of the poems, not not every single one, but most of them are titled Poem I Wrote After and then Something. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. Friends, you know, with every episode being like the one with. Yeah. Which is quite fun. Like it's not a, it's a more serious book than it wants you to think it is. But it's not a serious book. The way I was talking to my friends about it the other day and I described it as like Rupi Caron Eckies, <laughs> <laughs> which actually is pretty accurate. So yeah. I, all I'm going to do today, because there is no big thoughts that I have about this, I just wanted to share some of my favourite poems from it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no thoughts today, just, just vibes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is one of my favourite ones from early in the book. And it's titled, Poem I Wrote After I Went to Tuscany to Journal About My Toxic Guitar Teacher. (laughs) Okay. Going swimming is an amazing way to stop being on your phone. I woke up early as a cry for help, but there's no oranges in this sunrise. I was promised oranges. I was promised the Upper West Side. I woke up so early and the lonely polo horses won't even come say hi. I can't believe I had sex in those woods. Sex! The biggest, baddest thing you can do, baby. Sex with its slime and guts and romance if you're drunk. 
It's nothing like swimming. You know when it's done. (laughs) That's it. I also particularly enjoy how none of them have anything to do with their titles. They are just like, it's almost mm, like, yeah. it's like notes app poetry, like what we were talking about last episode. Yeah. <laughs> this one is called Poem I Wrote After I Didn't Drink for Six Days and Thought About Starting a Cult. I have a disease where I never want to get out of the Uber because then it means I have to be somewhere. For years, I've been suffering from a serious addiction to Adam Driver and Jason Schwartzman, even though I think my crush hasn't texted me because I'm out of town. But then again, I never told him I was going out of town. What if I used my brain for good instead of thinking about boys with swoopy hair all day? Oh, that last line is a mid. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I thought you'd enjoy that one. (laughs) This is what I mean. Like, it's all, like... You feel like you're on a wee roller coaster with her and then she says something that actually is true and you're like, oh. Yeah. Excuse me, (laughs) ma'am. This one might be my favourite one in the book and it's called Love Poem for My British Lover. In a past life, I was a tycoon smoking a cigar and you were my wife. I'm sorry I never took you to Paris, but tonight at the casino you promised me we'll stay till 4am. There's an old man in the corner sipping noodle soup And you ask me what I love about that. Back in New York, I eat and sleep fine. I'm sad about many different coloured things I turn into a paste. If I'm honest, I felt more in love that time the Orthodox Jew I was dating ran away from me when we saw his friend in line to see the Gatsby remake at the Garden Theatre. Do you know a bunch of people paid hundreds of dollars to watch a man read the entirety of The Great Gatsby out loud on stage? Do you know I've never been laughed out of a room for saying my favourite book is Catcher in the Rye? Do you know why I keep telling everyone we're getting married in Paris as a joke in the spring? I just think that sounds really sad. I like it. Yeah. This one is just called Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It rained for six days straight in New York City and I started telling everyone I want a boyfriend. The rain made me think I wanted a boyfriend, so what if I do? I accept I can't change you. I accept you're in Rome. I accept I've romanticised your knowledge of music theory. For all my talk of songs, I'm much better at calculus, geometry, noticing the way you pull your sleeves up in the park. All my fantasies revolve around a screen door, Red wine, the dirty projectors, stew in the summer, rain as an excuse to do everything in excess, sex that makes you hungry for stew in the summer. I am not the one who noticed I only reveal what I really want in song. A man in flannel with one hand on the steering wheel telling me something I won't remember because it isn't memorable. I really like the line, I accept I've romanticised your knowledge of music theory. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if I've picked it out here, but she has one that ends, um, it's a really sarcastic book, and she has one poem that ends, like, I guess I am the voice of my generation. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I kind of, I would be okay with that. This one is, there's no such thing as overreacting, it's called reacting, darling, with an exclamation (laughs) point. A doctor told me my ass is scientifically weak, and that's why my hip hurts. Oh, that's why my hip hurts. That's why I'm calling you to ask if you miss me, which is the best way to know you don't. God, I feel modern tonight. God, I feel present. I just watched a nine-minute video where a girl named Nicole that I've never met tells me how to make a messy bun with just a clip. You tell me there's no halves with me. You tell me there's perils in my guts. I tell you there's a play about us, and you ask what it's really about. My friend cuts my hair. My friend brings me flowers to put in a vase. My friend made me this bay window. Makes me happy to be sad. James says there's a difference between humour and satire and that's technically not a bay window if it doesn't extend to the floor. (laughs) (laughs) And I like that one because you can't tell for a lot of this book that it was written in lockdown, but I feel like that Mm. one screams this was written in lockdown. I feel like mm, not no yeah. I feel like technically it's not a bay window if it doesn't extend to the floor is a fact that you would only learn when you'd been in your house for way too long. <laughs> yeah. And this is the last one I'm going to read out because um, it's a very small okay. book and I don't want to read out the whole thing. It's called Road Trip Poem number 17. And 17 is my favorite number. So there we go. Mm. 
I'm jealous of everyone and I wouldn't change a thing. Every time we have sex, I tell you it's one for the record books and you say something can't be special if everything is. Boys love drumming on stuff. Boys love taking their shirt off with one hand. Oh my God, experience whatever pleasure you can in this life. For example, I'm at McDonald's right now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that one. That might be my favourite. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think it's really like bite size and uplifting. Yeah. (laughs) It feels, I don't know how she's... Also, I... Sorry. No, go on, because I'm going to say something stupid, so you say something. I was going to say something stupid. I was going to say I don't know how she's managed to write that poem that feels like eating McDonald's fries. Yeah, (laughs) I was going to say I don't understand how boys take off their shirts with one hand, because I can't can't do that. They they aren't impeded in the same way that we are. I know, (laughs) I know. But yeah, I love that line, boys love drumming on stuff, boys love taking their shirt off with one hand. There's a line actually further back, it's in one of the first poems, and she's got, I got a cold brew and felt like falling in love. Boys love to run downstairs fast. Men love to date powerful women for three to eight weeks. (laughs) I like that she's written them like, not boys do this, but boys love doing it. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know why adding that makes it a better sentence. (laughs) I don't know, it's just everything about it. There's so much, like, humanity in it which sounds like such a bullshit wanker poet thing to say but it does feel like Mm. there's real people in the poems yeah and like that it's very like carpe diem like sees the day sees life vibes um but also with a big old dollop of depression which you know some some (laughs) mood yeah so i don't honestly i don't have that many thoughts but it's really funny book it's also like a really satisfying book to own it's quite small and stubby and short and the cover is gorgeous and you could like easily Mm. fit it in your bag or like if you're a tall person maybe a back pocket and i just think yeah that's that's neat (laughs) so there you go god i feel modern tonight by kat cohen okay (laughs) So for this week's writing segment, we thought that it would be entertaining for us to take a vocabulary test, seeing as we're supposed to be writers. I'm going to do so bad at this. Like, I'm just warning you. I mean, I'll pro- I I hope I'm good because it was my job to be good at vocabulary for the last three years. Yeah, can we just say that? Like, Rebecca literally professionally had to know her vocab, whereas I do English Lit and I don't. So if I'm really bad, that's why. So the quiz, we have 10 seconds to answer each one, but I'm just going to screenshot the questions and then, like, it'll be fine. This will be hectic. Yeah, it'll be grand. Cool. Here we go. Start. Oh god. What is a synonym of monotonous? Bothersome, frequent, boring, or amazing? Boring. Yes. What is a synonym of futile? Pointless, sensible, absurd, or dark? Pointless. Yes. What is a synonym of puerile? Childish, dishonest, weak, or exotic? Puerile? Yeah. I don't think I know that word. Let me think. Let me have a think about it. Can you say them again? Yes. Childish, dishonest, weak, or exotic. Part of me feels like it's childish, but I think that's wrong. No, it is. Oh, okay. Yeah. That was a guess. <laughs> well, I think it is. Yeah, it is. It is. I was like, I, I said that was so much confidence. And then I was like... <laughs> what is a synonym of haughty? A-U-G-H. Needy, huge, mm-hmm. impractical, or proud? Proud. Yes. What is a synonym of opulent? Rich, unethical, bald, or religious? <laughs> Rich. Yes. What is a synonym of repine? Fight, deliver, complain, or glimpse? Repine, like R-E-P-I-N-E. Yeah. Say them again, sorry. I, I clicked on it to try and make it stay, and I accidentally answered it, and I got it wrong. Apparently it means complain. Would never know oh, that. Oh, okay. I, I don't think I would have guessed that, that. That was a new word for me. What is a synonym of querulous, irritable, mythic, wrongful, or fascinating? I don't know that word either. Quer- querulous. What was the first one again? Sorry, I've forgotten okay. the first one. Irritable, mythic, wrongful, or fascinating. Querulous makes me think query, which makes me think like 
fascinating. I don't know. Okay. No, that would that's like a good logic. I was gonna go for quarrel, which would I Oh yeah, yeah. I would have said wrongful though, but apparently it's irritable. Querulous. Oh, okay. Like annoying. Okay. God, this is hard. Um, <laughs> okay, what is the synonym of quell? Delay, stop, contain, or wait? Oh. Oh. Delay, stop, contain, or wait? They're all so similar. Yeah, I'm trying to think what... Maybe delay? I, I was going to say contain. I'll go with one of them. I'll go with delay. Yeah, no, they all make sense. It says just It says just stop. Oh, okay. Oh, it's getting really into the nitty-gritty here, Merriam-Webster. <laughs> what is the synonym of ingenuity? Creativity, disappointment, romance, or business? Creativity. Yes. And what is a symptom of lucid? Damaged, clear, forgotten, or changeable? Clear. Yes. Our result is 7 out of 10. But really it's 8 because I accidentally clicked the wrong one halfway through. <laughs> That's not so bad. Okay. That's not too bad then. Okay, which is a synonym of laud? Like L A U D. So it's save, believe, I don't know if that's read or read, and praise. Praise. Yeah. Which is a synonym of providence? Prudence, removal, result, or curiosity? Removal? No, that's wrong. I have no idea. Prudence. I don't know really what either of those things are. Because I thought providence was like where something, like knowing where something came from. So that's why I said removal. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Which is a synonym of, I don't even know how to pronounce this. Promulgate? Promulgate? Okay. Literally no clue. Announce, calculate, listen, obtain. Can I see the word? Can you see that? Uh-huh, yeah, okay. I'm gonna just throw one out there. Uh, go with obtain. It's a noun. Would never have known. No. <laughs> you have really hard ones. Yeah, I'm feeling attacked right now. <laughs> okay. Which is a synonym of fetish? Goal, food, conclusion, obsession. Obsession. Which is a synonym of flamboyant? Oh, I love that word! <laughs> Faithful, silent, hollow, flashy. Flashy. Yeah. Fetish and flamboyant. These are more <laughs> these are more Rebecca friendly words. Which is a synonym of recrudescence? Activity, grief, adventure, renewal. Recrudescence. Oh god, I've got no idea. I'm gonna go with renewal. Yeah, it is that okay. one. Okay. Which is a synonym of formidable? Rebellious, impressive, endless, shallow. Impressive. Yes. Which is a synonym of levity? Humour, restriction, value, justice. Humour. Yes. Which is a synonym of propagate? Help, shrink, manufacture, publicise. Oh, Help or manufacture, depending on the context. Uh, Go with help. Go with help. Publicise. Propagate. Only in a very small context. Come on, lads. You don't don't publicise a plant. (laughs) I don't know. You propagate a plant. Which is a synonym of lament. Okay. Mark, value, fulfil, mourn. Mourn. Yeah. I don't know what you got, because I feel like I... It was just running out of time before I could like actually click an answer, so I was just getting all the right ones. I think you got... Let me have a look. One, two... I think you got seven. Yeah. I feel like there was at least three I that I did not know, so that's fair. Yeah. Yours seemed much harder than mine. That was ridiculous. I, I feel challenged, <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> Do you have a quick fire favourite this week? Yes, I have a song this week. Nice. It is called In Blue by Declan McKenna, who... I love it. Yeah, I love Declan McKenna. But I somehow missed this song, which came out a few years ago, because it's on the Moomin Valley soundtrack. I was going to say I love this song because it's on the Moomin Valley soundtrack. 
yeah, I literally know nothing about Moomins. Like, I don't, like, I could not tell you a single thing. So it was never in my periphery, but, like, I just stumbled across it a few weeks ago and I love it. Well, if you've heard it then, you <laughs> maybe you have an answer for this, but I can't decide if it's a nice song or a sad song because it has, like, loads of lyrics about, like, happy moments and relationships, but the words in blue Mm. consistently come up so like there's a line that says I caught a glimpse of it your brilliance and lines about like him doing the dishes for her and like but there's a verse that goes and when she smiles she knows I'm happy too in blue and when she smiles I know I'm happy too in blue Mm. and it's those lines in blue that really throw me off because obviously blue has connotations with sadness yeah so like I guess for me it's like one of those like happy sad songs that's like you can interpret it in different ways depending on how you're feeling when you're yeah listening to it but yeah I just like how it makes me like think whenever I'm listening to it like I can't make up my mind up but I I enjoy that yeah I never actually thought of that because I've listened to I've listened to that album like five million times like I've heard the song on that album so many times but yeah I've never really thought about it like that I've never really questioned I do think that the the line that always sticks out to me is like yeah and when she smiles she knows I'm happy too or whatever it is and yeah in yeah. blue but yeah, I always just kind of took it at face value and I never really accepted it. In my head, it's like, I don't know, maybe I think of memories as being in certain colours, like certain eras of my life as mm. being in certain colours. So to mm-hmm. me, I guess it sort of feels like that, where he's going like, oh, this was the blue relationship or yeah. whatever. Yeah, no, that that makes sense, yeah. Either way, it's a good song. Mm. And it like it's just such a beautiful song. Like, just how it sounds the music's very like it's mostly quite chilled but then there's like a few sort of like emotional moments same with his voice as well it's it's mostly quite soft but then there's there's bits where he sings a bit louder it's just lovely good song yeah it's really like yeah it's, you're right it like swells at certain parts yeah like, oh, so good yeah <laughs> what uh, is your quick fair favorite um mine is also a song this week it came out this year and it's called hypotheticals by lake street dive they're american and apparently they've been around since 2004 but this is the first one of their songs that i've heard i think that like lofi who i talked about before or someone recommended this song on instagram anyway it's really energetic it's really funky and it's all about the feeling of like when you first meet someone and you're thinking of all the things that could possibly happen. The hook is, yeah. I've been playing out a lot of hypotheticals in my mind. I've been writing your name down next to mine. And yeah, it just fucking slaps. Like, <laughs> it's a really, really fun song. And it's more, it sounds quite timeless. Like, I feel like that song, when I listened to it, it could have been released in the 70s or the 90s mm-hmm. or this year. And I would believe you. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's worth a listen. Yeah, I've heard a few of their songs before, but, like, I couldn't really tell you them by name. Like, I've just... They've been on playlists. Mm. But, yeah, I like what I've heard of them as well. I don't know if I know that one. I'll have to listen to it and see if it's one of the ones that I know. Yeah. Like I say, it's, the beginning of it's really slow. And, like, it sounds like... If I, mm. if I didn't... If I hadn't had it recommended and I just heard the beginning, I'd skip it. Because I'd be like, oh, this isn't the kind of thing that I want to listen to. But... If you give it like fifteen seconds, then like the, yeah. the beat comes in, and oh, it's so good. That's cool. Do you have a root for us? Yes. So today's root word that I've picked is tresses. I used it in a piece of writing lately because I was trying to think of more exciting words for hair. And I really like the sibilance of it, like tresses, Mm -hmm. so it's a good word for poetry. But it did get me thinking, like, how the fuck did we get from that word to, like, hair, or from hair to that? Like, it doesn't doesn't seem related. So I did a bit of research, and it turns out that tresses isn't just hair, it's braided or pleated hair, which I didn't know. Oh. And the word tresses is from Old French. But the origin before that is uncertain. Some people think that it comes from the Greek word trachea, 
which means rope, but it also mm-hmm. more broadly means threefold. So the way that a braid is three bits of hair or a rope is braided from textiles. And yeah. it makes sense then that instead of sounding like anything to do with hair-related words, it sounds like tres, which is the Spanish word or general sound for three because it's all to do Ah, because it's more to do with the idea of three pieces than it is to do with hair it's just that braiding became such a popular hairstyle that it became synonymous with hair Mm -hmm. so there we go tresses nice did not know that no neither did i that's the whole point (laughs) (laughs) do you have an insight for us i do so i was researching Dante's Inferno for my thesis because I've got a bit of a comparison between that and Ninth House but I've never actually read Dante's Inferno so I was googling what happens in it (laughs) (laughs) because I can't be bothered reading it and I came across this article on the Penguin Random House website and it's a bit of like a light-hearted fairly sassy explanation on the different levels of hell okay and i just really enjoyed it so i thought i would take you guys on this journey through hell with let me find the byline here who wrote this matt staggs that's a good name his article it is a good name first circle is limbo the first circle is home to the unbaptized and virtuous pagans It's not heaven, but as far as hell goes, it isn't too bad. It's a retirement community of the afterlife. Hippocrates and Aristotle will be your neighbours, so any attempt at small talk will probably turn into big talk in a hurry. You'll have television, but all the channels will be set to C-SPAN. Got it. (laughs) Okay, second circle is lust. The wind-buffeted circle of hell is the final destination of the lustful and adulterous, basically anyone controlled by their hormones. Cleopatra and Helen of Troy were among its most famous residents during Dante's day, but you can expect this place to be full of angsty teenagers and reality television stars by the time you arrive. (laughs) The third circle is gluttony. Today's forecast calls for plenty of icy rain and slush, a wintry mix for all eternity. You know those people whose Instagram feeds are full of carefully lit photos of artfully arranged entrees? You'll probably find them here. Plus anyone whose response is, I'm kind of a foodie when asked where they'd like to go eat. (laughs) Okay, the fourth circle is greed. This section of hell is reserved for the money grubbers and overly materialistic among us. According to Dante, those condemned to the fourth circle spend eternity fighting over money and valuables, so be prepared to meet all of your distant cousins who show up out of nowhere with with empty U-Haul trucks the moment after a well-to-do great-aunt or uncle dies. (laughs) The fifth circle is anger. Dante tells us that the wrathful and angry gods of this circle spend eternity waging battle on the River of Styx. If playing pirates forever sounds like your idea of a good time, then the fifth circle can't be too bad. Be prepared to hoist the Jolly Roger and go to war against that one guy in line who yelled at your favourite barista and the road rage possessed driver who very nearly rear-ended you last week. (laughs) Sixth circle is heresy. Dante wrote that heretics spent eternity entombed in flaming crypts in the sixth circle, but heresy is kind of an obscure sin in modern times. There's probably plenty of vacancies now, so let's fill this one with anyone who's goes bananas whenever their movie franchise or comic book changes in a way they don't like. The air in the sixth circle is probably choked with ashes and anguished cries of, X ruined my childhood. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah. Okay, seventh circle is violence. I'll be honest with you, dear reader, Dante was being kind of a dick when it came to designing this level. It's composed of three rings. The outer ring is filled with blood and fire and reserved for murderers and thugs. That's fine, but it gets sketchier from there. The middle ring is where, according to Dante, suicide victims go. They're transformed into trees and fed upon by harpies, which I guess are somehow related to termites. (laughs) The inner ring, a place of burning sand, is reserved for blasphemers and sodomites. Like I said, Dante was a bit of a dick. How about we wreck on this one? 
Sorry, residents of the Sixth Circle, and reserve it for the likes of the Westboro Baptist Church. If that makes me kind of a dick, well, I'll live with that. <laughs> yes, Matt Staggs! <laughs> the Eighth Circle is fraud. The Eighth Circle is subdivided into ten trenches. We won't get into the specifics of who goes where. Too bad, Dante, that's what you get for making me write about the Seventh Circle. But here you'll find con artists of all sorts. Dante described ditches, but I prefer to think of the Eighth Circle as being a giant cubicle farm full of phone and internet fraudsters. Welcome, supposed IRS agents who insist on being paid in iTunes cards. The Ninth Circle is treachery. And all it says is, The final circle is a frozen wasteland occupied by history's greatest traitors. So, Washington DC in February? (laughs) And that is it, a visitor's guide to Dante's nine circles of hell. (laughs) Well, you know, I do feel like I understand the whole Dante thing a little bit better now, but some of those sound fun. Well, maybe. I'd go and play pirates. (laughs) Yeah. I will say, if anyone wants to know more, but like wants to have fun while they're finding out about it, my favourite podcast, and that's why we drank, did an episode on like Dante's Inferno. So M breaks down every circle, but like they go into all the detail of like the 10 different, mm. you know, ones and all that. But they do it like in a very funny way. So if anyone is actually interested, I would recommend that podcast episode because I also listened to that uh, as quote unquote research. <laughs> Bloody students. <laughs> I love it. Alright, so this week's question is submitted by a friend of the podcast, D Fretter. What's up, D? And he asks, what is the premise of the YA fantasy novel that you would write for each other? Which was a very interesting question. Yeah. It's meant to be like about each other, right? I, like, I think so. Shall I go first or do you want to go first? No, you crack on. Okay. So my novel is Rebecca has come, because this is YA, she's come right out of high school. Mm-hmm. And she's landed her dream job as a reporter for the town's local newspaper, Mm -hmm. right? She's kind of like Rita Skeeter, (laughs) but with morals. Like, she has the sass and the skills and definitely has the magic quill (laughs) that, like, writes for her. Because fantasy novel, obviously. And while reporting on things around the town, she discovers that a secret organisation is ruining the forests... Like in the second Ferngully film, where all the fairies' houses are being like chopped down and poisoned. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? So, it's up to Rebecca and a host of mythical woodland creatures that she meets along the way to save the forest by like circulating illegal pamphlets, which she does through her work at the newspaper without her co-workers knowing. <laughs> And she actually likes writing them because she can be persuasive instead of being impartial. And she gets to put her own spin on the writing and stuff, which she doesn't get to do at her job normally. But that secret organisation may have ties to her workplace, which means that she could be in real danger. Oh! (laughs) I love it! (laughs) There's trees and woodland fairies and journalism! I love it! Yeah, I was like, how do I make this the most Taurus fantasy novel? Yes! <laughs> uh, oh, I need that to exist now. Maybe I'll write that one day. Yeah, please do. <laughs> oh, so much fun. Okay, do you want yours now? Yeah. I So I didn't write so much a pitch as I wrote a blurb. So that okay, this, is, cool, yeah. this is the blurb that would be on the back of the book of your YA fantasy novel. So first we have a little pull quote, because what good YA blurb doesn't have a pull quote? <laughs> cool. And it says, Legend has it, Emily whispered, that the day the rusted anchor breaks, the spell that keeps them here will be broken. Cute, eh? And then the blurb. What? Emily is a gothic literature student working part-time giving guided tours of her city's supposedly haunted ship, The Mermaid. She's memorised every ghostly sailor who supposedly walks the deck, along with the specials menu and the way to open the gift shop till. And Tim has memorised her. Tim is a lost soul, but unfortunately for him, he's still alive, 
and trying to find a way out of taking over his father's funeral home. Drawn to the mermaid by a longing for adventure, he finds himself finally alone with the girl tour guide from his favourite place. Or so he thinks. What? (laughs) So... I want to read that. (laughs) The premise, also, like, for anyone that has missed out on this joke, Tim is obviously Timothy Chalamet because he's the only love interest of Emily. (laughs) Um, I love that. But yeah, I was like, I need. To, there needs to be a haunted ship. There needs to be a funeral home. There needs to be a curse. <laughs> cool. I did used to work on a haunted ship. Yeah, I, know. I meant to the to the listeners who yeah, don't know. know that. But like, I was. I'm proud of the fact that I was like, I was thinking about yeah. your your life, and I was like, what can I, what can I do for YA <laughs> I love that. I would genuinely read that book. Well, maybe one day I'll write that one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, thank you for the question. That was that was fun. That was really to think fun. About. It was... <laughs> I spent way too long on those like four sentences. <laughs> yeah. Good times. And that is us. If you have any comments or questions, then our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We also have our social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with everything we have talked about today, including the Infatuated Mix, which has all the music that we mention. And please rate and review us on your podcast apps, because that helps get the podcast out there. And as much as we love to listen to the sound of our own voices, we do do it for other people (laughs) to listen to it too. Also, I would like anyone to write in with the YA fantasy blurbs that they would make for themselves or their friends, because I think that was a really fun challenge. Yeah, I loved that one. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and we will see you all next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.